if you are new to Grace Fellowship, one of the things that we do here is we we walk through whole books of the Bible, uh, and we have been working our way through the book of Acts, and and as we've been going through this book, this this early history or this this history of the early church, one of the things that we've seen that is the church is growing. Uh, even as it encounters hostility. Uh, And so today we're going to meet a man named Stephen. Um, And Stephen's story actually is a very long story, and so that's kind of one of the... um, uh, one of the things that happens as you go through whole books is sometimes you reach a passage that's really that's really too long to cover in one morning, but it all goes together. And so we're actually going to look at the story of Stephen in two parts. Uh, we're going to start today in chapter 6, and uh, we'll finish in a couple of weeks. Uh, Stephen's story actually runs into chapter 8. Uh, and the part that we're going to look at today is particularly long, uh, too long for me to read here. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is go back and, and read it for yourself, not just to take my word for it, uh, but this morning I'm going to read Acts 6, verses 8 through 15, so if you've got a Bible, please turn there, uh, and then I'm going to summarize uh, the remainder, uh, really the whole of chapter 7. Uh, so let's give our attention to God's Word in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant and infallible word. Let's pray and ask for his help. God in heaven, as we open your word this morning and as we summarize much of what it has to say here, Lord, we just pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it, Lord, that, uh, that your word this morning would be to us a treasure trove, and that you would bring out for us your treasures, God, that you would, uh, that you would delight us in you, that we would be in awe of your majesty and grace, uh, and that we would not leave here unchanged people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so you may be familiar with the story of Stephen, uh, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, but in case you aren't, Stephen is actually one of seven men that we met last week. Uh, he was chosen by the church to uh, help take care of widows. Uh, But what we see here is that Stephen is also quite the preacher and miracle worker. In fact, the the way that he's described actually reflects uh, the way that the apostles, the early other, the other church leaders were described.
describe. Um, he not only preaches, uh, speaks about Jesus with power, but he is also able to do miracles that confirm his message. And so as he is teaching others, he's uh, apparently teaching in the synagogue, and uh, to, just to help you understand a little bit Jewish culture, the synagogue was kind of like the local Jewish church. They gathered there on the Sabbath, they heard readings from their Old Testament, and then usually someone would get up and, and talk or teach from that passage. So apparently Stephen was doing that, and other members of the synagogue challenge him. Uh, they, they dispute with him, and it looks like these are uh, Stephen would have been a, a Greek-speaking Jew, uh, so his culture looked a little bit different. We talked some about that last week. Uh, but he gets challenges from uh, his fellow synagogue members, and they can't seem to win. Uh, Luke tells us, uh, the writer of Acts tells us that they cannot withstand his wisdom and the Spirit. And so, uh, like in any good debate, if you can't win, uh, you drum up false charges and, uh, and bring a lawsuit. And that's exactly what they do. They, uh, they, they drum up some false witnesses and they have Stephen dragged into the high court, the high Jewish authority, the Sanhedrin. And if that whole scene sounds familiar to you, it is because this is exactly what happened to Jesus. Uh, Stephen almost is paralleling the steps of Jesus. They even said some of the same things about Jesus. So what exactly is it that Stephen is guilty of? Well, they bring bring two charges against him. Uh, One, uh, they they say, well, overall they say that he is a blasphemer, that he has insulted or spoken against God. And against Moses, which in their minds would have basically been the same thing. And he's done that in two ways. One, he has spoken against the temple, this holy place. And two, he has spoken against the law. Now, those are very serious charges because to insult the temple and to insult the law is to really, if you're going to go after those two things, you are going after the heart of Judaism. Uh, Jewish identity was rooted in the law of Moses and in the temple. Those, those were two identity markers and so to insult those two things is basically to insult the God of Israel, the God who gave the law and the God who lived in the temple, who dwelt in the temple. So these are not small charges that Stephen is facing. And again, they're actually the same charges that Jesus faced in his time. And so it's interesting that the and actually we're going to come back to those charges in the end and say you know what is it what is what is it actually that Stephen was saying, um, but in the, right now what we're going to do is we're going to see how Stephen answers those charges and he actually answers those charges by telling a story. He actually and, and it takes and it's a long story. Uh, it's actually the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts, which is why we're not going to read it. It really takes up all of chapter seven. We're going to summarize it, but it's the story of the Old Testament. Stephen walks his fellow Jewish uh, friends through their own story. Uh, And he walks them through to show them uh, how he actually is teaching the truth. 
and that they're the ones who are rejecting it. Um, and so to answer those two charges, uh, Stephen tells this story, and as he tells it, he basically makes two points. One, the first point he makes as he goes through is he says that God is not confined to a place. Right, so Stephen answers the charge about the temple by saying, actually, God is not confined to a place. Rather, he's the kind of God who always pursues his people. So he's the God who goes out to get his people. And then second, the second point that Stephen makes is that many of those same people often rebel against him. So there's two points that Stephen makes in telling the story. So let's look at the first one. Um, and if you've, uh, if you've got a Bible, it would be good uh, to, to follow along in chapter 7. Uh, the, the high priest asks him, so Stephen is, Stephen is brought before the court and these charges are laid at his feet. And so the, the high priest, the judge of the court, asks him, are these things true? Or is what they're saying true? And so Stephen answers, and he answers the charge about the temple by showing that God is not restrained to a place. He's saying, right, that that you don't have to meet this God that he's talking about in a temple in Jerusalem. Rather, this God is a seeking God. Uh, He is is the kind of God who actually goes out after his people. He's not confined. He's not controlled. Uh, He goes out after his people. And he demonstrates this, Stephen does, by walking through four periods of Israel's history. He begins with Abraham, kind of the father of the Jewish nation. Then he goes to Joseph. Then he talks about Moses. And he spends a lot of time on Moses, probably because that's who they're charging him of, of insulting. Uh, And then he talks about the era of the the temple. So those four periods, and we're just going to summarize each one of those. So he begins with Abraham. So if you look at chapter 7, verse 2, when the high priest says, Are these things so? Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory who appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia... Uh, excuse me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And so he begins with Abraham and he says, Listen, guys, God went and got Abraham. Abraham was living far away. There there was no Israel. There was no promised land. There was no temple. Abraham was not worshiping God. Abraham was not following God. He He was what we call a pagan, worshiping the moon God in Mesopotamia. Uh, and God goes and gets Abraham and calls Abraham. So long before there was ever a temple, God was on the move. God went to Abraham and rescued Abraham. And then he brought Abraham to the land that he would eventually give his descendants. And he made a promise to Abraham. He bound himself to Abraham. And we find the story in Genesis chapter 12, at least beginning there. That Abraham promised, excuse me, that God promised to be Abraham's God. And God to Abraham's descendants after him. And he promised to give him a place. And he promised to give him descendants. 
And so, and, and the covenant, the agreement that they make is what was come to be known as the covenant of circumcision. That Abraham would mark himself and all of the male descendants after him. And that mark would set them apart as God's people. Alright? So, so Stephen goes with Abraham first and he says, God went and got Abraham. There was no temple, there was no Israel. God went to pagan Mesopotamia and got Abraham. And then he goes to Joseph. Look in verse 9. Actually, back up and look at verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And, the, and so, so Abraham has twelve great-grandsons, And one of those great-grandsons' name is Joseph. And here's what happened to Joseph. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Now, you may feel like your family's pretty messed up. That you have a pretty dysfunctional family. But I don't know if anybody in here has ever been thrown in a pit and then sold into slavery in a foreign country. That's what Joseph's brothers did. So you may not really get along with your siblings, but it's nothing compared to what we have in the Bible. I always kind of chuckle a little bit when people talk about you know, loving the, you know, the, the biblical family. And I understand what we mean when we say that. You know, the, the biblical family, one mom, one dad. I get that. Um, but I always want to ask, like, which biblical family are we holding up on a pedestal here? Because we don't get many good examples uh, in, in the Bible, right? If you're looking to the Bible to kind of venerate and, you know, uh, people as examples, you're going to have a hard time finding it, right? The, the people in the Bible are a wretched mess, and, uh, and Joseph's family would be an example. So they, they sell him into slavery in Egypt. But notice what Stephen says next. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So Joseph uh, is sold into slavery, uh, into Egypt, and God goes with him. God was with him. He goes with him into slavery Now in pagan Egypt, again, still no temple, still no Israel, still no promised land, God goes with Joseph into Egypt and pulls Joseph up. This this young man, sold into slavery, ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt. And then God uses him to protect the rest of his family from a famine. God brings the rest of Joseph's family to him and preserves them through Joseph's authority so that God can keep his promise. So the very people who rejected Joseph are now saved by Joseph. But then things take another dark turn. A new king, several, uh, a couple hundred years pass, and a new king arises over Egypt, a king who did not know Joseph. And being afraid of the Israelites, uh, he begins to persecute them and oppress them and actually makes an edict that their sons should be thrown in the river. Uh, he does not want the people uh, of Israel in his land. And so, um, and so we pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 20. At 
this time Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, when he was thrown in the river, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as our own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And so God raises up another person, again, at work, on the move, in a foreign land. And he, raised, and he, and he makes sure that Moses does not die in that river, uh, but is actually raised up in Pharaoh's house, receives all the education that uh, a son of a king would receive. And then one day, uh, as Moses goes out to be with his people, uh, he sees an Egyptian guard uh, beating one of his own, and so he actually intervenes and ends up killing the Egyptian. Uh, and Moses has to flee. He has to leave Egypt, and he, and he runs off into the wilderness. And that, in most stories, would be the end. But it is not the end of this story. Look at verse 30. When forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now that's significant, because what, what was Stephen accused of insulting? This holy place, right? The temple. And yet, here we are, on some unknown mountain in Arabia, nowhere near Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and God appears to Moses... And what happens when God appears to Moses in a bush? Not some grand temple, not some grand holy site, but in, a, in, a, in some scrub brush on the side of a mountain. And what happens when God shows up there? That place becomes holy place, holy ground. So, so God is not confined to a place. Rather, wherever He goes, that place becomes Holy, because He is holy. And so God meets Moses and He sends Moses back to Egypt. And the same Moses that they rejected now becomes their Redeemer, now becomes their Rescuer. And Moses leads them out of Egypt, leads them to the land that He had promised, that God had promised to Abraham over 400 years before. Uh, So for over 400 years, God has been on the move, seeking His people, rescuing His people, before there was ever such a thing as a temple. And then finally, Stephen brings us to the age of the temple. If you look in verse 44 of chapter 7, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, what we call the tabernacle. Uh, It was the tabernacle that Moses built, the, the tabernacle that God told him to build. Our fathers, verse 45, in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. So, so God finally, after 400 years, says, Okay, now 
since you all are living in tents, build me a tent and I will live with you. So rather than being stationary, God says, I will dwell with you, or rather you will dwell with me. And that's how, they, that's how they make their way through the wilderness and into the promised land. And it's that way until the time of David. Until David says, you know what, I want to build a house for God. And actually, David's son Solomon is the one who built it. So some 400 years after that, then a temple is finally built. But even after that, even when the temple is built, here's what God says to the prophet Isaiah in verse 49. Verse 48, rather. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? What Stephen is trying to tell them is, guys, you're idolizing a temple. You're idolizing a place. You're idolizing your traditions. And you're actually missing God. God is not confined to this house. Rather, the temple is meant to point to God. Right? The temple is, is really just a temporary spot, a temporary stopping point. The temple is meant to point beyond itself to the God who always comes to meet and rescue His people. In other words, God is not confined to a place. He is boundless and free. And now, why does that matter to us? So what? Why, why, does that, why, why should that matter to us in 2020 in Clanton, Alabama? Well, that same God is not confined to a place. He's not confined to what we call the Holy Land. He's not more there than He is here. God is still on the move. God is still rescuing and seeking His people. He is boundless. He is uncontrolled. He is not contained, which means His mercy is free. So I don't know where you feel like you are this morning. Maybe, maybe you feel like you're too far from God, that, that you're beyond God's reach. I want you to hear the, the promise of Stephen that no one is beyond God's reach. Maybe you're worried about your child. And maybe you're concerned that a, about a co-worker. Hear that God's free grace is that. It is sovereign and free. It is not, uh, it is not kept away by our uncleanness. Your dirtiness does not keep God at bay because it did not keep Him at bay from Abraham or any of the other people whom God has saved throughout the course of human history. God is free and not contained. He is not contained to a place uh, or, as we're going to see in the book of Acts, He is not even contained to just a people. Which brings us then to the second point that Stephen makes. And that's the, the other side of that story. We've, Stephen has been telling the story of God's character, of God's free grace. But now he brings in, or, or along with it, he's also telling us about God's people. The people whom God often, uh, whom often God, God saves, and they are the people who often rebel against Him. 
And this is how Stephen answers the charge of speaking against Moses and the law. And the reason Moses and the law went together because it was Moses who brought the law down from Mount Sinai. And so to speak against the law and to speak against Moses are really synonymous. And so Stephen, uh, Stephen basically answers that charge uh, of speaking against the law by saying, No, you're actually the ones who are speaking against the law. You're the ones who are guilty of what you're charging me with. We were, uh, we were in the mountains of North Carolina this past week and I was with our extended family and I was uh, walking uh, behind my brother-in-law. One of the things that we do, there's a, there's a, a short hike we go on. It's a steep one, uh, but it just goes up to a little peak called Lookout Mountain. Uh, and this year we decided to attempt it with all, you know, 106 children. However many we had, there were a lot. Um, there weren't that many. It sounded like 106. Um, and I was walking behind my brother-in-law uh, as, uh, as he was guiding my nephew, uh, who's almost four. Uh, and one of the things that he said, as he, the, the path was steep in places, and so it was slippery, and it rained uh, some, and so it was also muddy. Uh, and so one of the things my brother-in-law said was, uh, and he held out his hand to his son. He said, Buddy, if, if you'll walk with me, it'll be a lot easier. If you walk with me, I'll, I'll lead you the right way and it'll be a lot easier for you. Uh, now, can you guess what my nephew told him? I got it. All right. He batted his hand away and proceeded to go the the harder way through the mud. Right. Um, well, that's that's the story that Stephen tells of God's people. That at, at every moment in the history, when God comes after His people, they push back. They they bat his hand away and they say, "No, we got it." And we see it a little bit with Joseph, right? That, that Joseph's brothers reject him. But where we really see it, where Stephen really brings it out, is with Moses. Right? Moses, who has led them through the Red Sea. Mind that, they've seen an ocean part so that they can walk through. And led them to Mount Sinai. And they've seen God's fiery presence come down on Mount Sinai. And, and Moses is on the mountain receiving God's words for them. Uh, and this is how the story goes. If you look in chapter 7, verse 38. This is the one, Moses, who was in the congregation, that's the word for church, uh, in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And how did they respond? Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So, Moses is on the mountain speaking with God and their response, what the people want, is they want to make gods. They want to make gods that they can see. Gods that they can touch. Right? They want, why? Because if you can see it and touch it, then you can control it. 
Because that's kind of the dangerous thing about an uncontrollable, uncontainable God. He doesn't play by your rules. Which means he's, he's unmanageable. Uh, he plays by his rules. Uh, he doesn't conform to us. We conform to him. And that's challenging, isn't it? For those of us who want a little bit of independence. For those of us who, who really just want a religion that we can just kind of manage. Now maybe we just want to be able to kind of check the, the spiritual boxes. That's not really the God of the Bible. So what they want is a God they can contain and control. And so they reject Moses' authority. And in rejecting Moses, they reject God. And they continue to do that throughout the rest of their history to the later prophets uh, who are in the Old Testament this just becomes the same story and so Stephen drops the hammer on them in verse 51 of chapter 7 he says you stiff-necked people do you want a, um, do you want a good example of how not to win friends and influence people just listen to Stephen you stiff-necked people now, what's he calling them? Stubborn cows, right? Who refuse to yield to the yoke. They refuse to walk the, plow, walk the plow down the line. They keep bucking. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. What's Stephen doing? He says that same spirit of resistance that was in the wilderness, that's in you. Stephen's gone from we to you. You are stiff-necked. You are uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Right? What's he saying? He's saying, you, you guys make a big deal out of circumcision, right? You, you look like you're doing the right things. You make a big deal out of the tradition of Moses. But in reality, on the inside, where you need to be cut, you are not. You look right on the outside, but inwardly, you are as dead as any Gentile pagan you, you, uh, you hate. I uh, heard a story this week, anecdotal, but it's about a, uh, a photographer in New York... Uh, she uh, she has all this fancy uh, photography, videography equipment, and she also happens to have a golden retriever. Uh, and she comes home one day to find that her dog, her beloved golden retriever, has died. Uh, and now she lives in New York, and so that means she doesn't have a yard. Um, nor does she really have any way to dispose of her dog. And so she calls the, the vet and the vet says, Sure, yep, just, just bring her down here and we'll take care of her. Um, so now she has this challenge of how do I get my dog, this big dog, down to the vet? Um, and what she decides to do is she takes her expensive camera equipment out of, out of one of the bags, this huge bag, and, and she actually puts the dog in the bag and zips it up uh, and begins the, the long, arduous trek down to the, the vet's office. Uh, so what, on the outside, it looks like she's got really nice camera equipment, thousands of dollars worth of equipment, but really on the inside, it's a dead dog. 
And so as she uh, as she's making her way out of the subway terminal, terminal up the steps, um, a gentleman passes uh, and offers to help. And she thinks, "Man, this is great. Yeah, this is this this. Please help me carry this up the steps." Uh, and so what he does is he takes the bag off her shoulder, shoves her down, and runs off because he thinks. He's got some really nice camera equipment. And he's going to go sell it and make a quick buck. But what's he going to find when he gets into the alley to open it up open up the bag? A dead dog. Right? Well, that's that's what Stephen accuses the religious leaders of. You guys look really nice on the outside. You look like you're doing everything the right way. But inwardly is death. You You are just like your fathers who rejected the prophets, so you have rejected the righteous one. You have rejected the one that the prophets spoke about. How about us? Are we stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears this morning? Are we the kind of people who try to keep the church face on, uh, but inwardly our hearts are far from God? Are we like these leaders? Do we, do we use the law of God to actually stay far away from Him? As long as I can check the religious boxes, I can avoid having a real relationship with the uncontained and uncontrolled God. If that's you, then I want you to hear the grace in Stephen's warning. Now those words maybe not sound like grace to us, They sound rather harsh, judgmental. But I want you to hear Stephen's words like like you would hear a diagnosis that you didn't expect from your doctor. Nobody wants to hear that they have cancer. But you need that word. There's grace in that word because it means that there's path to treatment. You need to know that you're sick before you can pursue health. And that's exactly what Stephen is doing here. He's aiming to show them their sin and how deep it goes so that they will turn to God. Which as we're going to find out in a couple of weeks, they don't do. Instead they kill Stephen. But I want you to hear the cure. So let's go back. Let's go back to the charges that were brought against Stephen. And I want you to hear the good news uh, in those charges. Because I think Stephen is just echoing what Jesus taught. Jesus uh, did say... Actually, he didn't say that he would destroy the temple. But he said that if they destroyed the temple, then he would raise it up again in three days. And John, that's where we find Jesus' words. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus is speaking about his own body. What Jesus is saying is that he has come not to destroy the temple, but to replace it. He's coming to do away with all the sacrifices. Because he will be the ultimate sacrifice that pays for sin once and for all. And he's coming to replace all the priests... Because He is the ultimate High Priest who stands between us and God. So yes, Jesus is doing away with the temple and replacing it with something better. In the same way that a light bulb is no longer needed when the sun rises. 
And in the same way, the law. Jesus never said He was destroying the law. But what He did say is that He was coming to fulfill it. In fact, as Paul says in Romans 10.4, Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, Israel was never able to keep the law. The law could not make them righteous and it cannot make me righteous and it cannot make you righteous. And so what that means is that the righteous one had to come and keep the law so that you and I could be found righteous in God's sight. Jesus comes as the righteous one so that we can be presented before God as righteous. So Jesus replaces the temple and He fulfills the law. So the question for us is, do you know that Jesus? Do you know the Jesus who comes, not not contained to a place, but a Jesus who goes out into the world to rescue and redeem His people? Do you know that Jesus? That's an invitation. Let's pray.